In this episode, we speak with Ed Boyajian, President and CEO of EDB, a global data software company serving over 4,000 customers, including leading financial services, government, media and communications, and information technology organizations. EDB is backed by Great Hill Partners. Ed has steered the company through 45 consecutive quarters of recurring revenue growth. A pioneer of the open source software business model, Ed was previously the GM of Red Hat North America. Ed is an Army veteran and a board member for Project Citizenship, a nonprofit that helps permanent U.S. residents become citizens. We hope you enjoy the show. Ed, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a delight to be with you. I'd love to start off with the database market. Maybe what we could do is hear your perspective on the overall database market, what's been happening, and then where EDB fits into it. RJ, thanks. It's great to be here with you. Let me frame it a little bit, maybe in kind of larger context. So I think if you look at software categories across all segments, I think the database category is arguably the biggest single subsegment of software. Maybe not surprisingly, because databases and database in general are strategic companies. We can estimate somewhere between 65, I mean, depending on how you're counting, 75, 85 billion dollar industry, depending on what you count in that. But it's arguably quite a large category. And then within that, there are differences and distinctions based on the type of data and database that are at work. We operate in the arena, kind of the biggest part of the market, which has been the kind of enterprise database market, where it's typically characterized by systems that have transactions and that require those systems to be highly available. It require transactions to be consistent. And that's where we operate in that landscape. But there are emerging sub-segments and specialty areas that have grown in more recent years, but we're participating in kind of that biggest piece. That's helpful. And you know, for the common folk out there who aren't deep into the database market, where does Snowflake, and people have heard Snowflake and MongoDB, some of these names that are frequently talked about. How does EDB compare to those and maybe some other notable names in the market? Yeah, let me start with where we play. So we are the leading commercial provider of the open source Postgres database. And Postgres is a independent open source technology. You might think of it like Linux in that context, not captive to a company, but actually governed by a broad community of contributors around the world, of which EDB is the major contributor to that, but it is an independent project that's run globally. And that's also notable that Postgres itself is a relational database, so focused more on the transactions and the types of applications that demand transactions. So if we contrast that a bit to, say, Snowflake, Snowflake operates in what we would refer to as the analytics database workload, where Transactions aren't quite the same. You know, you're querying those engines to get insight and information around analytics and things like that. And so they operate in that category. That's kind of in a separate arena. And then Mongo is kind of operating in a emerging area, specialty area for document-related workloads, more unstructured data. They're kind of in an arena we think of as a systems of engagement where they're kind of social media style apps, websites that have a database behind them. And so they operate in that area, but not so much the enterprise, the hardened enterprise transactional area. And I think I heard in an interview that you had done contrasting the market sizes of these various kind of niches. How can we think about the market size of where EDB plays versus others? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I think, let me just do a quick summary. We break workload universe into kind of three rough buckets. We talk about systems of record where there's a single source of truth. And you can think about an ERP app or a CRM app. Those are kind of good ways to think about that arena. That's where Postgres and EDB compete. We view that as in the $60 billion kind of market size category. You look at the data warehouse market where Snowflake competes, for example, that's the analytics. And we look at that as a discrete in the order of $15 billion, $18 billion market. Teradata would be in there too, if you want another company. And then in the systems of engagement, that really is a bit of a subset of the systems you know, of the overall, what we think of as the 60 to 65 billion systems of record market, there's a subset there. You know, it's hard to know how big that one is. Let's just judge by the revenue. If you add up the companies who are there, Couchbase, Mongo, and such, their revenues add up to a billion five. Hard to know how much is there in terms of total addressable market. I mean, I think it's fair to say it's somewhere in the five to $10 billion range, I think. You know, speaking of the market size, you've been able to grow within your market over the past decade or more, and you've been backed by some notable investors. Can you tell us a little bit about how the company has grown steadily over time and kind of what's really enabled you to grow on a consistent basis? Yeah, I think that at the core, and I would always say this, it centers on technology and the strength of the database that we are responsible for building in the community we support in Postgres. I think if you looked at how Postgres has evolved over its lifetime as an independent open source project, which now is over 20 years, we've been contributing to making it a better database over time. So I think it starts with technology and innovation. And I think that, so if you looked inside of Postgres, you know, Postgres itself is a multi-model database. So it handles a lot of different data types. It's an object relational database, which gives it some inherent flexibility and strength. And then it's quite robust in handling of diversity of workloads, distributed workloads, and the like. So I think it starts with tech. I think the other thing is the power of a true independent open source project like Postgres, not controlled by a company. I think contrast that to things like Mongo is open source, entirely controlled by the company. And I think there are really powerful differences. I was at Red Hat before coming to EDB, and that was associated, as you know, with an independent project, Linux. So I think the independent community has thousands of contributors. Now, EDV has many of them, but not most of them. And that inherently allows Postgres to develop faster. And I think in the eyes of users becomes quite important. I mentioned the kind of breadth of applications that Postgres handles. That's one of the drivers of our growth, that big market segment. It wraps around the largest number of workloads. And I think the idea that you can take Postgres and deploy it anywhere. You can deploy it in your traditional data center, which is a common practice. That's where the traditional proprietary vendors live. You can deploy it in containers, you know, Kubernetes and containers, in homegrown private clouds, all the way through public cloud and managed databases of service. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a general purpose nature to Postgres that is inherently powerful for enterprise applications. That was a nice way of deferring any credit to you or kind of what you've been able to kind of cultivate there. Can you tell us about your leadership style, how you've kind of built the organization? Sure. I think one of the things, a view I've always taken, I came here from Red Hat, I came here almost 14 years ago. So philosophically at my core, I'm a builder. I believe in creating a business that's durable and endures over time. And I think that 
that style, that nature has obviously found its way into EDB and to the work we, that we do here. And I think with that emphasis, we've really focused first and foremost on being a deep technology company that I think if you look at the way modern businesses have kind of emerged, especially some of the new open source players, there's been a lot of heat and light and a lot of capital has flowed. And so there's a big emphasis on marketing and PR and promotion. And, you know, we've not paid as much attention to that. We focus much more on core technology competency and building the foundation of a great company to serve customers over time. And I think that's really important in a database category where you know, think about the legacy vendors in this category, Oracle and Microsoft and IBM and SAP Sybase. Those companies still have $40 billion of that 65 in database. Mm-hmm. So durability is powerful and companies stay with them because those companies are strong. And they think of us as having those chops. Now it's turned into 48 consecutive quarters of recurring revenue growth and a company of 750 plus in 39 countries around the world. So we've taken a really thoughtful approach to growing successfully and we're growing fast, but also to being really disciplined about building a great company. Let's switch over to investors, if we may. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of the investors that have been part of the company and how they've added value in helping kind of you and your team scale the company over time? Yeah. So I think in that 14-year trajectory, I've actually participated in selling the company twice, once from our venture capital owners to the first group of private equity owners. And then more recently, four years after that, we did that in 2015, 2019 to our newest PE owners today, Great Hill Partners. And notwithstanding the handsome, handsome returns that all prior investors made, and I'm particularly proud of, I think, as I described, I think one of the things that has played an important role in aligning with investors, and certainly been true in the case of our partnership with Great Hill, is having a shared vision for the growth potential for Postgres and EDB in the market, and then simultaneously an appetite to invest in that. That has been particularly true, particularly with these last two sets of investors as the company has grown and matured and transitioned over time. But I also think that there's a bit more what I'll call subjective relationship that we have with our investors. And that's around the experience and skills that they have to be our partner and to really to be a business partner to the company, but especially a business partner to me and the executive team to help us get better. And so in that context, a lot of what our investors have done, and particularly recently, you know, we have recent experience in helping us with team building and helping us find the kind of talent to go to the next level. I mean, we have an executive staff that's evolved over time too and had to bring new people in to help us grow into the next stage of our business. And then obviously they've helped us with strategy, about strategy and thinking about strategy in the context of the future and the broader market. And you know, of course, raising capital. Well, they're one of the firms that we frequently recognize, you know, as being kind of top performers. And that's not just via returns. It's through kind of feedback in the market of how they are to work with and how they help companies scale. So I'm glad you touched on that. One area we always like to talk about is some of the challenges you faced along the way and how you were able to deal with them. I think it's particularly helpful for some of the CEOs that are always kind of day in, day out trying to solve problems. So we'd love to hear about kind of maybe a moment where that really sticks out in your mind. Maybe I'll talk a little bit about some of the current challenges that we're facing. And I think of them as also aligning pretty strongly to what our priorities are. 
I think success in any business, especially one that you're building for lasting value creation, durability, and success with customers is talent. I think at the end of the day, it really, our success is all about the people in the company. And I think our teammates make all the difference in our success. And if you look at the biggest investment we make, it's in the colleagues we have. I think in that context, like many companies that are growing fast, bringing the right new talent to EDB to help us grow in our next phase, that is always a challenge. I think that in particular, we're investing heavily in our go-to-market as we kind of accelerate growth and bringing the right talent and sales and marketing in that part of the business is a big priority for us. I think not surprising, we're continuing to accelerate our investment in technology, particularly around cloud, not just in cloud, but particularly in cloud. So getting that talent in matters. But right alongside that, you know, we have an incredible staff of talented colleagues and continuing to develop them as they grow in their professional journey and helping figure out how that experience and journey aligns and should align to our requirements in the business, you know, that requires a lot of active engagement, you know, and of course, evaluating talent, helping to find that path, but also really tuning in to where our people are and where they want to go and listening to them. And then the last is staying well aligned and integrated as we're moving fast in the market. We introduced OKRs, objectives and key results. And predominantly in 2021, it's been served as a great mechanism and approach for us to keep people communicating and aligned to what the outcomes we're really trying to get to. And have you had to make some changes as a result of kind of the new work style and balance between remote and in-person and this overlay of the great resignation, maybe people having a change of heart in how they want to approach their career? We have. You know, I think if you look at what we've experienced, particularly over the past two years of COVID, I mean, it's hard not to talk about that as being a monumental challenge in and of itself. Foundationally, I think one of the things we got right early on is we were very clear-minded from the beginning. You know, this was in the earliest days of COVID, almost before it kind of crashed across everyone's shore. But at the very beginning, we were clear-minded and declared that our employees' health and well-being was our first priority. And we did quickly also say that our second priority was ensuring that our customers who rely on us for essential and mission critical operations receive the same extraordinary bulletproof service that we've always delivered and been known for. So we kind of got that early as principles. But within the context of our people, we've really dialed into what the needs were to keep them engaged, to minimize turnover, to minimize that kind of impact of the great resignation. I think it was really paying attention. And there's a lot of layers to that. A couple examples. We got everybody remote out of the blocks very early in March of 20, and we gave them all the tools they needed, you know, internet connectivity, desks, monitors, chairs, things they needed. And we got people all over the world in countries where there isn't so much infrastructure as we're comfortable with here in the United States. And then we paid a lot of attention to personal needs. It's a whole new world of experience we're having that's intersecting our work. Our personal lives and our work lives have gotten closer. You know, we're in our each other's homes every day now. And so we implemented Wellness Fridays every third Friday since 2020. We gave everybody a holiday, extra day for everyone company-wide, in addition to all normal PTO. And we introduced some wellness apps that help people address personal issues they may have and get some help if they needed it. We've done a lot of little things to try to help our people stay connected and engaged. And I think that helps us bring new people in. I think it's a powerful culture. You mentioned the OKRs. Is that implemented all the way down or throughout the organization? And does that help you kind of have 
more people be autonomous in the way they approach their work? Yeah, it does. I'm not sure I think of it purely as getting to autonomous work, but we've layered OKRs throughout the organization. Last year, we really focused on kind of the senior two or three layers. I mean, we don't have many layers in the company, but we worried about making sure we practiced the skill and got good at it, the kind of upper end of the business. And this year, that's now migrated across. And it absolutely has helped at two levels. I think one, forcing yourself to memorialize these objectives, which are long arc, maybe 12 to 18 month kind of perspectives with 90 day windows of key results, which are entirely outcomes driven. Just the process of developing that forces everybody to think about like, what is most important here? And so it is, as you likely know, it's entirely outcome focused. And it's easy to get to drift from outcomes when you're busy and working really hard. Effort matters a lot here, but outcomes matter more. Great. We're coming up on time, but I have two questions I like to end with typically. They're more on the personal end to get more insight into you. Can you tell us about a leader particularly admire? It could be across any domain, someone you think about and you try to emulate them and you strive towards kind of gaining some of their attributes? I love this question. I get it and occasionally change depending on my mood, but not often. I don't know if you've ever followed Ernest Shackleton, who is kind of a world-renowned explorer in his day, maybe less so today. But if you've ever read the book Endurance, you know, it really speaks to a particular phase of his life, which was extraordinary when he and a group of other sailors, but he captained the first endeavor to cross Antarctica from sea to sea. I think that was in 1914 via the pole. And if you follow that story, it really is remarkable in that, you know, they got stuck in flow ice and they had to survive on ice and then by boat to get to land. And then again, by boat to get help to bring people back and rescue the crew. And he led that with incredible drive, thoughtfulness, and paying attention to the nature of the people and what they needed, and himself being in front of that. I mean, he was on every subsequent voyage until he got help and came back with that help. And I think, you know, it's a kind of a story of perseverance, dedication, and real drive, but also underneath it, a very intense awareness of the needs of a team and of his people. So love the story. If you haven't read the book, it's a great book. That relates to our last question. You could give a different answer or we could just end it because I was going to ask what book you would recommend folks reading, one that had big impact on your life. I would read Endurance. I think I've given it to everybody in the company at some point or another. I think in addition to me, just a fascinating story. I think if you read between the lines, an incredible story of leadership. Fantastic. It's a good note to end on. Endurance and durability is a good theme of this conversation. Well, Ed, thank you so much again for taking the time. I know our audience will find this very insightful. Thank you, RJ. 